good. It's been all over the news. You may not have seen this. And usually what I do if something's all over the news is I read different sources because if you just read one, you, you get a very slanted view. But if you read a lot of them, you kind of get a vibe on like what's actually happening. And it's in the news, not the best reasons. Like some people are actually outlawing. In fact, if you were a student at the University of Texas right now, um, they have disabled TikTok from their Wi-Fi. And so you would have to go off Wi-Fi, which is a dreaded thing, I know, and then you know have to have to access it that way. And there's reasons for this, that's to do with they're owned by, you know, different government on stuff. But as I was reading about it, what was interesting is one of the things that TikTok is doing now, and I don't know that they've quite done it yet, but they're about to do it, is they're going to introduce a screen time limit if you are under 18, which is a lot of you. So has this happened yet? Has this gone down yet? It's about to get ready. So what happens is, is you're gonna, I think you have an hour is your, is your limit on TikTok. And then what it's going to do, my understanding, they may change this, but this is what they've announced this week, is that they're going to basically make you make a decision. Okay, they're gonna lock you down and then you're gonna to have to enter a passcode or something like that, which is kind of funny. It's like, hey, we're locking you down, but not really, like, do you wanna keep going? But it's at least gonna force you to make a decision if you want to keep going. And it's like, well, why would they do that? It's really interesting. Well, how many of us on, on social media, whether it's TikTok or something else, we might be like, oh, I think I know why they might do that. Because how many times, like, especially at night, when you're about to go to bed, you're like, gonna give it one more check, you know? And all of a sudden, you're on some crazy train, like going somewhere. You're like, why am I looking at videos of penguins? Like, in the, like, I don't even know what's happening anymore. And that happens, right? And you look at your clock and you're like, I started this an hour ago. How did this happen? And so they're aware of this. They're aware that you could go on this, this crazy rabbit hole and you end up spending an hour without even realizing it. And they're like, we need to do something. How kind of them? You know, but how kind of them to give us a passcode to, to beat the system? If needed. And it's interesting because I was thinking about that and I was thinking about myself and I was kind of observing people this week and myself, unfortunately. And one of the things that you observe if you pay attention is when people, including me, have any dead space in the day, what's like the first thing that we do? We pull out the phone and we, we fill that space by checking our phones. And we even do that sometimes when we're hanging out with people. Have you ever noticed that? Like a lot of times if you're at a restaurant, just look at the tables around you. I was like, a lot of times people aren't talking. They're on their phones. Okay, and I'm, no judgment. It happens here. It does. It's fine. It's hard to make it through a message, though, and just sit and listen for 30 minutes. You know what I mean? I was like, why is that? What is, what is happening with that? And I think the reason why is that we live in a culture that the word you could use is restless. We are a very restless culture. Okay, what restless means, it's kind of like in the word, actually. It just means you're unable to rest. That's what it means. It's not crazy. Unable to rest or relax as a result of anxiety or boredom. Okay, that's what it means. You're not able to rest or relax because of anxiety or boredom. So think about it. Think about how difficult it is just to sit there. It's really difficult. We're not very good at it. And so for some of us, we always are on our phone to fill time. I struggle with this too. Um, uh, some of us, we're just always busy. Like we're just always going to the next thing. We fill our calendars. And I remember what Mark said one time. When I was just seeking his counsel on some things, he told me, I've never forgotten this, he says, you know why we're busy? He's like, tell me, Mark, why we're busy. And he said, we're busy because busyness reflects an addiction to people's approval. We are busy because we are addicted to people's approval. We want people to approve of us. So we constantly keep going and we don't know what to do when we stop. But the reality is secular sources observe this too. This isn't just like a church thing. 
There are secular non-Christian sources that say our restlessness is a problem. And so there's a book uh, out of Princeton from this professor. He works at another university, but it's called, very relevant, it's called Why We Are Restless. That's what it's called. And so a secular source who's a professor at a college and out of the Princeton uh, press says this. He says, we live in an age of unprecedented prosperity. And so if you look around, we're pretty wealthy, right? Like we are, we can pretty much overall do what we want to do within reason. And so we're a very prosperous country and prosperous society. In fact, everyone in this room is in the top percentage of wealth worldwide. We just are. And so even if you're like, I don't have as much as they do, we're all in the top, top part just by living here. And so we're unprecedented prosperity, yet, this is what he says, secular source, we see signs that our pursuit of happiness has proven fruitless. And so he says, if you study people, most people, very prosperous, are not happy and are very restless. And so you would think we have every reason to rest, and yet we're not resting. And so the question is why? And so I just want you to think about this before we jump in. What makes you restless? Like in your own life, this week, where did you experience restlessness? It could be in so many things. It could be the stress of school. It could be a a friend or relationship situation that caused you to be restless. It could be you're trying to figure out where you're going to college. You haven't heard back yet. It could be the the restlessness of of the GPA. You're worried about that. Uh, It could be anything. You felt like you got left out. Of, of something, you, I mean, you fill it in with anything that causes you restlessness. Now, I want you to think about this. Where do you experience that in your relationship with God? Okay, for some of us, uh, when we, maybe you're, you're struggling with the sin right now, and you feel like you're running away from Him, and you're running away from God, and that can create restlessness. You might be struggling with a particular sin right now that's just really getting you, or a really hard situation in your life. Uh, maybe for you, you feel like you're, you have to improve yourself. Like you think for God to accept you, you got to clean some stuff up first. And so that may be you and it's causing you restlessness. You might feel this burden. Like for you, the Christian life is all about what you do for God. Like you got to be busy for God. You've got to do great things for God. For others of us, it might be that we're actually living a fake life. Like the life that we live out there is very different than who we are when we come to things like churches or Bible studies. And that creates restlessness. And so why do I say all this? Because that's actually exactly where David finds himself in 2 Samuel 7. He's experiencing restlessness, something we all experience. Now, you might be like, you realize, you go, whoa, did we fast forward? Like a lot? We did. Okay, we don't have time to do everything. And so where do we leave him? Well, where we left him, if you remember, he's in his 20s. He's on the run from crazy King Saul in the wilderness. Saul's trying to kill him, and David's living among the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, because he couldn't live safely anywhere else. And meanwhile, at that time, the Philistines are about to attack Israel, and Saul, in his desperation, this is crazy, you can read it, he goes to get wisdom from a witch. That's what he does. That's when you know you're struggling, all right? And so he's like, I'm going to go to the witch of Endor and have this woman tell me what's up. So he does. And this is what she says to him. She says, I've got your answer. You're going to die in this battle. How encouraging would that be? I'm seeking wisdom. Oh, I found it. I've got it. You're going to die. Okay, tough conversation with the witch. And so on the season finale of 1 Samuel, we finally made it. It's not quite out of banks, but it's, we're there. And so David rescues all these people. I thought that was funny. Don't mind. David rescues all these people. Thanks, Ryder. I appreciate that. I know I can count on you. Um, Saul 
gets hit, gets wounded, and he's so paranoid, he actually kills himself. That's how he dies. He falls on a spear in front of the Philistines, and he dies. That's how it ends for Saul. And so we're left on this cliffhanger. We're like, what's going to happen? What's David going to do? And you would think, oh, finally, Saul's dead. David's going to become the king, but that's how it happens. It actually gets even worse. And so this guy named Abner tries to actually take the kingdom from David, give it to one of Saul's sons. The Philistines are attacking Israel. And so it gets just more crazy. And then to sum it all up, David wins. All right, is that fair? Can, I, can we just skip that? David wins the battles. He goes through all the craziness. And finally, he's officially the king. He's made it through the wilderness. He's the king. And when things finally settle down, he's at rest. He's actually restless. He experiences this restlessness. So he, he has built this crazy palace. He's getting to live in it. It's awesome. It's got beautiful wood. It would have smelled amazing. It would have been awesome. But he's not at rest. And the reason he's not at rest is because he feels like something's missing. He's like, man, I need to do something for God. Like, I've got to do something for him now. I need to earn his acceptance. I need to do something for him. And so God's going to give him a really surprising answer. And it's going to relate to our restlessness that we experience today. Now, I want to tell you this before we go into it. This is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. One guy would even say, you can't understand Jesus if you don't understand this chapter. It's like, what? 2 Samuel 7, one of the most important. Yes, this is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, in the storyline of Scripture. And it's going to tell us two things. Okay, this is what it's going to tell us today. It's really simple. The essence of Christianity. The essence of Christianity. Do we have it up here? The, the essence of Christianity. What's it really all about in the first part of it? We're not going to read every verse. And so you're like, wait a minute. A random chapter in 2 Samuel is going to tell us what Christianity is all about. If you were to break it down. Yeah, it is. That's how important this chapter is. It's also going to tell you the effect of Christianity. If you really believe this stuff, what's it actually going to do to your life? Because there's actually a lot of confusion about these two questions. What is Christianity all about and what does it actually do in your life? And so what I'm going to tell you is that the answer to these two questions heal our restlessness. And so bear with me, I'm going to share. So let's talk about this. What's the essence of Christianity? It's actually four things. We're going to go into that in a second. So this is verses one through three. This is David. In his restlessness, the king lived in his house. So he's got this awesome house. The Lord had given him, you see that word, rest from his enemies. The enemies are gone at that point. He actually can finally breathe. He's living in a house. He's the king. He's made it. And so he says to Nathan, the prophet, he's like, hey, I dwell in this house of cedar, which would have been amazing. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. So he's like, hey, at that time, God's presence was in the tabernacle, which is basically a traveling tent. That's what it is. It would have been moldy. It would have smelled bad. And so David's like, that's not cool. Like, I've got this sick house and God's in a tent. That's not cool. And so I need to do something about that. And so he says, uh, Nathan says, hey, go do what you want to do. The Lord is with you. If you want to do something awesome for God, that sounds great. Okay, That's like somebody coming in and being like, I want to write you a check for a million dollars to the ministry. You're like, yes, do that. Like the Lord's with you. That's what, Dave, that's what Nathan says. Now God is going to give David a very surprising answer. You would think God would be like, that is so cool that you want to do that for me. That's awesome. Go do that. That sounds great. That's not what he says. And what his answer is going to do, it's going to tell us four things about the essence of Christianity. Four things that Christianity is all about and what it has to do with our restlessness. So here's the first one. This is verses 4 to 5. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. said, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Uh, basically what he's saying here is, no. No. 
You're not going to do that, David. So he's saying, you're not going to do that. You're going to see why in a second. But this is the first principle of the essence of Christianity. It's what I'm going to call the sovereignty principles. In verses 4 to 5, this is what it means. It's really simple. In Christianity, we don't have a God who's just kind of up in heaven like, oh, hope that they figure it out. I hope it works out. No, God has good plans. And that's what you see here, is that David has a plan, and then God comes in and says, no, I've got a better plan. And the truth of Christianity is that God's plans are better than ours. God's plans are better than ours. I have to tell myself that all the time. I have to constantly say, well, God's plans are better than yours. God's plans are better than yours. God's plans are better than yours. See, David wanted to build God a house, and God says, no, 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 I'm going to build you something better than that. And we're going to find out what it is in a little bit, but it's going to be something that will spread his love to people all over the world. This is the answer to what Heinrich was saying of how do we spread it all over the world. This is it. In 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to show it to you. But I want to ask you this before we keep going. Have you ever had your plan shut down? Like, have you ever planned something that's good? It's not a bad thing. Plans are a good thing, and it hasn't worked out. I remember for me when I was in high school, um, I wanted to play football. That was the plan. Okay, not only was I, you know, not the best athlete in the world, I know it's shocking, but I remember sophomore year spring football, I was actually in a decent place on the depth chart, and I felt good about where we were headed, and I ran this beautiful route. No, not being prideful, it was a beautiful route. Take our dig, no big deal, and I faked the heck out of the DB. Like, I planted the foot, and he, like, went blind. Like, I broke his ankles. And I, I cut in and I caught the pass. I'm not kidding. I really did it. And I was just sitting there like, oh my, like, I've, I got this. And he, in retaliation, came and tackled me. And it tore my ankle. They had to carry me off the field. And that was it. Okay, and I didn't play again after that. And in that moment, it was, it was like, good, good plans, Will. That's not going to happen. All right. Now, God did something through that. The things I experienced, the people I met, the track that it took me on was actually so much better. But I had no idea at the time. We actually started Iron Sharpens Iron at the high school after some of those events. It wouldn't have happened if that, if that injury wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have met some people that then led me to the broadcast of, of football and things like that if that wouldn't have happened. And so I look back on that. I'm like, oh, God had a different plan for me. When I graduated college, my game plan was I was going to move to Portland or Boston. I don't know why. And I was going to plant a church, and I was going to be the next famous pastor. But I was going to know me, listen to my podcast, all that good stuff. Instead, I'm at another church, and I'm a middle school resident, and my biggest job was like setting up chairs on Sunday. And I'm like, what has happened? And in that, God was teaching me what it means to actually serve, what it means to actually be a leader. It was actually preparing me to form relationships that would lead me here. And so when God shuts down your plans... It's actually a good thing. And so if I were to ask you, like, what's your game plan? Like, what's your plan for life? A lot of times, what do people say? I don't know. Just going to see. But that's not true. And so if you play this game, it's called a double your age game. If I were to say to you, like, let's say you're 16. Like, okay, you're 32. What are you doing? You would have some things that come out. and be like, okay, well, let's be honest. I'm probably going to move to New York. I'm going to work for this company. I've got three kids. One's 10. Blonde hair. Playing football. Like, you know, you've got things you're thinking about, right? Like, you know where you want to go to college. You know some of these things. And so we all have plans. And plans aren't bad. But often when we make plans, God shoots down our plans. And that's one of the reasons that we struggle to trust Him. See, we want God in our car, but we want to drive the car. And that's one of the biggest struggles that a lot of us have. 
Okay, this is Proverbs 16.9. These are some great verses here that relate. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21 says it a different way. It says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Psalm 33.10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people's. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And so in saying no to David's plans, God's actually going to give David something so much better. In this, what he's going to give David can comfort us too. I give you so many more stories about this happening. But what you'll find is that all the prophets throughout the Old Testament, when things are really bad, they're going to go back to what God tells David in 2 Samuel 7. Every time, not every time, but most of the times they're going to go back. And they're going to find their hope in what God tells David in 2 Samuel 7. His better plan. Okay, In the New Testament, this is the basis of the hope of Jesus. Mary quotes this passage we're about to read when Jesus comes in. And so sometimes we have to learn that when you get on board with God's plan, it's way easier to loosen your grip on your plans because His plan is better. That's the sovereignty principle. Okay, The next one is this. This is verses 6 to 7 of this passage. This is what God says. He says, hey, have I not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day? But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Think about how crazy that is, how humble that is for God to do that. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He's like, I've never asked anyone to build me a house. This is what I'm going to call the incarnational principle, verses 6 and 7. The second principle, the essence of Christianity, is that God is a God who identifies himself with his people. His experiences are our experiences. He experiences what we experience. My people don't have a place to dwell. I don't have a place to dwell. My people are sad. I'm sad. He identifies himself with his people. This is incredible that we have a God that we don't work up to that's distant. We have a God who identifies himself with his people, so much so that he sent Jesus to take on flesh and dwell among us. And so that's the incarnational principle you see right here in Christianity. And the third one's this, verses 8 through 11. It says, now therefore this, you shall say this to David. He's like, this is the plan. This is my better plan. Here it is. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. He's saying, David, you didn't do anything to get here. I'm the one who brought you here. I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off all your enemies. So remember Goliath? God was like, hey, you didn't be him, I'd be him. I did that for you. And I'm going to make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I've appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that I will make you a house. So you want to make me a house? No, I'm going to make you a house. And so what you find here is what I'm going to call the third principle of Christianity, the essence of it. It's the grace principle. And this is what it is. is it's, when, when, um, it's not about you doing great things for God. See, David's like, I want to do great things for God. And God says, No. It's not about doing great things for me. It's about being in a relationship with a God who's done great things for you. That's a completely different religion. 
Christianity is not, oh, you do great things for God. No, it's living a relationship with the God who's done great things for you. That's Christianity. And so God is obsessed with giving grace to his people that don't deserve it. For giving strength to people who are weak. And you might say, I already know that. I've heard that every Sunday. But here's the question. Are you living like that's actually true? Because most of us aren't. Most of us are living like we have to do great things for God. Okay, Rick Lehman, I quoted him. He's one of our, I think he's our first missionary, BZ, right? And he's, he's having some health issues right now. We need to pray for him. He's a legend. I quoted this at the gathering. This is what he said about this. Jesus gave his life for you so that he could give his life to you so that he could live his life through you. That's Christianity. It's the grace principle. That's what Jesus did for you. This makes Christianity different from every other religion. See, one guy about this passage, Eugene Peterson, he says that David was about to cross a line, he thinks, from being full of God to being full of himself. He was beginning to think he could do God a favor. How many of us think we can do that? Now, this is what you learn. If any of us in this room develop an identity in which God's grace is less important to our identity than our own actions and our own performance, then we're in danger. And so if, if I'm building my identity on what I do, my performance, and anything, I'm in danger instead of building it on God's grace. That's the grace principle. Here's the kingdom principle. This is the last one. I already wrote it. That's great. Verse 12 to 16. Okay. Uh, never mind. Yeah, 12 to 16? Yeah, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, this is the big promise. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So there's going to be people from your offspring, your family tree, and I'm going to establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. This is the kingdom principle. This is the fourth one. Okay, so when God shuts down David's plans, he makes him a better promise. What's the promise? It's not that David's going to build God a house. It's that God is going to build David a dynasty. His descendants will be on the throne. And God will so unconditionally and so graciously commit himself to them so that not even death, sin, or time can break his commitment. And you see that. Verse 12 to 13, you see death. He's like, death itself, when you die, that's not going to break my commitment to this promise. Okay, number two is sin. Verses 14 to 15. He says that when, there's going to be people, a.k.a. Solomon, in your family tree, which we read about Ecclesiastes. I was told one of your covenant classes says he didn't write Ecclesiastes. I'm going live on the podcast. He did write Ecclesiastes, all right? But he was not obedient. And God's like, hey, even when your son messes it up, I'm not going to break my promise to you. And then finally, this is the most amazing thing, time. Like time itself. It's an eternal kingdom. How is that even possible? That's crazy. How is that even possible? Because one of these descendants of David, God is saying, will not simply have a kingdom, but an eternal kingdom that's going to last forever. So what do we mean by this? That's so crazy. This is the story of the Bible. God created the world in paradise, but when we turned from him, everything fell apart. That's why we have sickness, war, disease, conflict, and restlessness in our hearts today. That's the cause of it. And so the Old Testament is full of this hope, 2 Samuel 7, that one day 
God's going to send a real king that will come back and restore everything in reign forever. And so J.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings, which I've never watched for it, sorry, but I do know this quote from it, I love it, I go back to it all the time. It says, the hands of the king are hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. That's 2 Samuel 7. One day there's going to be a king, and you're going to know he's the rightful king because he's a healer. Okay, now who is that talking about? In Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, this is how the gospel starts. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Who is he? He's the son of David. Do you realize what Matthew's saying? He's saying 2 Samuel 7 is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the king that 2 Samuel 7 is talking about. This is not just a baby in a manger. This is the one who will reign forever. He will triumph over sin. He will triumph over death. He will triumph over time. He powerfully and literally fulfills every one of those principles. The sovereignty principle. He's the king who's in control of everything. The incarnational principle. He dwells among his people. Experiences what they experience. The grace principle. You get his perfect record because he takes your sinful record. And the kingdom principle. He's the king who will reign forever. This is about Jesus. And so the question is this. I want to end with this. What will this really do to you? Like if you really believe this, what's the effect of Christianity? It's in verse 18. I want to show this to you and then we're basically done. Uh, so the question is, what does this mean practically? These four things about Christianity are true. What difference does that make? Well, a lot. But let me give you a quick list. Okay, watch what David does here. He went in and he sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And so I want you to think about that. Think about his response. He literally sits down. I told the team I was going to actually sit down right here and demonstrate this. We don't have time for this. But I want you to picture that. So easy to just go through scripture. He is so blown away in humility that one of the most powerful kings in that day simply sits down before the Lord so as to soak this up. He's blown away by this, by this big loving God who's just revealed this incredible plan to take care of David forever and to do something through his family tree that's going to take his love to the whole world. And so what does he do when he sits down? He rests. He actually experiences rest. And so... This is what I want to kind of end with. If you sit with the Lord, if you sit, okay, you stop what you're doing and you actually sit with Him and you let these four principles of Christianity soak deeply in you. These are just principles of the gospel. You let the good news of the gospel soak in you. This is the effect that it's going to have on you over time. The sovereignty principle. You're going to experience trust and rest. When you receive His word, you can rest in His care. Okay, when we receive His word, we can rest in His care. So I don't want to minimize your pain this morning. Okay, I don't know everything, but I do know that the King is on His throne. And He wants you to realize that you're beautiful in God's image, but you're broken because of sin. But because He sent Jesus, the King of kings, the Son of David, to forgive, to rescue, and to save, that when you come to know Him, he won't tell you a lot of things. He's not going to say like, Jesus, where am I going to go to college? He's not going to tell you that. Who am I going to marry? He's not going to tell you all these things right now. But what he is going to do is tell you his character, that he's loving and he's in control. And so you can rest in him and trust in him and you can hold your plans loosely. Okay, the incarnational principle. When you soak this up, when you see that the king of everything spent himself for you, you're going to be called to serve other people and not live for yourself. The grace principle. When you see that Jesus' perfect record becomes your record, that fills you with joy. You know when things around you are crazy. 
Finally, the kingdom principle, hope and obedience. This is not just hope for you. This is hope for the whole world. The whole world is going to be restored one day. All the sad things are going to come untrue, as Tolkien also said. And obedience. If he's really the king, the only thing that makes sense is to obey him. We don't like to talk about that a lot. A lot of us say, hey, I'll obey God if he does this. Or I'll give God everything, but I don't want to give him this relationship. I'll give God everything, but I don't want to give him what I do on weekends. We like to do that. And it's like, no, 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 if he's the king, we give him everything. That's the only thing that makes sense. Okay? That's how it works. So this is what R.C. Sproul says, and I want to end with this. We're going to sing one more song. A true understanding of God's grace. This is the effect of Christianity. You see this on David. God's unmerited favor, the principles of Christianity, the essence of it, it always provokes a life of gratitude and obedience. That's what it does. That's the effect that it has on you. Not perfectly, but over time. So what I want to do is I want to invite you to just sit in that, to just sit in it this week and see what happens, see what God does. Okay, we're going to sing How Deep the Father's Love, which is a song that just invites us to take these things and just sit in them. And so wherever you're at, I just encourage you to do that. If you want to talk more about that, we'd love to talk to you. God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 that it shows us what Christianity is all about and it shows us the effect that it has on our lives. Lord, I pray we would just sit in that this morning. We wouldn't rush off. We wouldn't get our phones. We wouldn't make plans. We wouldn't start working on stuff. But we would just stop and sit in your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.